it was not part of their blood. It came to them very late, with long arrears to make good when the Saxon began to hate. They were not easily moved. They were icy, willing to wait, till every count should be proved, ere the Saxon began to hate. Their voices were even and low. Their eyes were level and straight. There was neither sign nor show when the Saxon began to hate. It was not preached to the crowd. It was not taught by the state. No man spoke it aloud when the Saxon began to hate. It was not suddenly bred. It will not swiftly abate. Through the chilled years ahead when time shall count from the date that the Saxon began to hate. The Wrath of the Awakened Saxon by Rudyard Kipling. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I said those who bring evil against me will not prosper. I said those who stand in the dark can never come into the light. All praise be to the one and only true God, Jesus Christ. ever seen the movie Casablanca? I had not for a long time and I, I watched it in my early 20s and thoroughly enjoyed it. I was still at the at the time in my life where you know the Nazis were the epitome of evil and uh, the American and English efforts to undo them were the epitome of heroism and I thought Casablanca was awesome. And if you remember the movie, uh, the kind of dishonorable objects of shame, you know, the picture of cowardice and self-preservation would be uh, those who belong to Vichy France, right? They, they were the honorable and the brave, the French resistance, and then the sellouts, Vichy France. And honestly, that's that movie, What prior to reading this article by uh, Jick Seri, uh, was kind of the extent of my exposure to Vichy France. I mean, I knew that there was some kind of government in place. Uh, there had to have been, you know, just conceptually upon the Nazi invasion of France, and I knew about the French resistance. Um, I mean, there were a ton of cool stories, and I, I knew about English sabotage efforts in France. But I, I hadn't really read much, so I find, I find this article uh, to be quite, quite intellectually stimulating as an example of alternative history. Looking at Vichy France. So let's read it together. In a previous piece, I noted how resistance against tyranny is a demand of the counter-revolutionary worldview. 
resistance against tyranny is a demand of the counter-revolutionary worldview. And I would say I am, I align with uh, the counter-revolution. I'm a counter-revolutionary. I argued that the use of political violence was not intrinsically at odds with the counter-revolutionary position. In this piece, I would like to emphasize how this can be exemplified with a concrete historical example from the previous century. In the birthplace of the revolution, where the Enlightenment found its greatest manifestation, France, we also saw the establishment of the first profoundly counter-revolutionary state in post-Enlightenment Europe, Vichy France. So it's an interesting example because, you know, as you know, the revolutionary spirit that has taken hold of Europe, uh, you know, you see it most brazenly, most bloodily in Russia and France, historically. So then to have an example of the counter-revolutionary state in the same place is helpful. It's noteworthy. You, you probably have Vichy France and then with more success uh, Franco's Spain. This state, Vichy France, which lasted from 1940 to 1944, was instituted by the French Prime Minister at the time, Philippe Pétain. Pétain was regarded as a national hero because of his heroics in the First World War. Once in power, however, he immediately moved to make peace with Germany and dissolve the Third French Republic, establishing the state of Vichy France. So here's a guy that uh, was not just a nobody, was not a career politician, but was a World War I hero, um, was a lover of his country, and though he had fought previously Germany, he quickly made... Uh, made the move to make peace with Germany. This new state, Vichy France, had to suppress those military forces who remained loyal to the old government and allied regime called the French Resistance. So the French Resistance was ideologically allied to the revolution of the past, which uh, you know ultimately is antithetical to the traditional social framework. The Christian counter-revolutionary nature of the state was nowhere better exemplified than in its replacement of the revolutionary motto of Liberté, Égalité, Fraternité, Freedom, Equality, Brotherhood. And it replaced that revolutionary motto, which sounds good but ultimately is satanic, with its own tripartite motto, Travail, Famille, Patrie. I don't know how to speak French, so I'm, I'm just kind of sending it on the pronunciation, as you can tell. Right, travail, famille, patrie, labor, family, fatherland. Pétain himself explained his counter-revolutionary opposition to the ideologies of the Enlightenment. As, a, as an aside, there's a guy doing laps with uh, with roller skates and a boombox, so he epitomizes uh, just the absolute faggiest fag of the '90s. Uh, 
You know, man on rollerblades, right? We know what that means. So, he explains his counter-revolutionary opposition to the ideologies of the Enlightenment. When our young people approach adult life, we shall say to them that real liberty cannot be exercised except under the shelter of a guiding authority, which they must respect, which they must obey. We shall then tell them that equality should set itself within the framework of a hierarchy. I don't know if you can hear that in the background, but dog was going nuts after a child, so it's crazy out here. You got a gay, uh, a gay guy doing interpretive dancing, listening to music, because obviously everyone wants to listen to that, and dogs going after kids, you know, living in America. Yeah, I gotta start this quote again, because that was highly distracting. When our young people approach adult life, we shall say to them that real liberty cannot be exercised except under the shelter of a guiding authority. And that That's good. You know, it's not... Uh, real liberty is not the faux liberty of do whatever you like uh, and to hell with the consequences, right? The great equalitarian dream of pure access to give vent to your base desires, but rather... Liberty is constrained by authority. And that authority must be respected. It must be obeyed. And that, that's consistent with, with, with a view of freedom in a Christian society. Right? I mean, uh, you have the freedom to obey God in a free Christian state. You don't have the freedom to do whatever you want. You have the freedom to obey God's law. We shall then tell them that equality should set itself within the framework of a hierarchy founded on the diversity of office and merits. So not just freedom to obey under God, but within the, the context of a hierarchical society wherein men's natural talents and traits set them appropriately above others, right? A society that's framed in light of the varying talents and traits God gives men. Finally, we shall tell them that there is no way of having true brotherhood except within those natural groups, the family, the town, the homeland. No true brotherhood with fellow man except in the context of family, town, and homeland. Can you imagine living in a country that preached to children from a very early age that truth? Freedom under respected and obeyed authority in a hierarchical context with brotherhood found in family, town, and fatherland. I mean, it's the kind of thing that your grandfather would want. And these are supposed to be the bad guys of history. No, these aren't the bad guys. Just, that quote, I mean, that could, that could have been said by Torba. That just sounds like something uh, Andrew Torba would say. These guys aren't monsters. They're, they're sensible counter-revolutionaries. A national counter-revolutionary program, ironically called the Revolution Nationale, was implemented on the basis of the ideology underlying the counter-revolutionary triad. Charles Maurras 
an outspoken counter-revolutionary Roman Catholic, was the program's ideological father. Maras opposed the Enlightenment as a negative development on the West and the French people. I agree with him there. He rejected equality and democracy and favored a royalist, decentralized state with a national church as protector of the moral order. A royalist, decentralized state with a national church as protector of the moral order. I can get on board with that. On an economic level, he favored the reinstitution of guilds, a kind of corporatism as an alternative to both capitalism and socialism. His theory of integral nationalism stood directly opposed to liberal civic nationalism in its view of the nation as an organic unity, albeit with a strong hierarchical structure. The Révolution Nationale followed this ideology and made the following reforms in France. Alright, so these are the bad guys in Casablanca. These are the cowardly sellouts in Casablanca and, and a list of the practical reforms they put in place in their counter-revolutionary agenda. You tell me if these guys are the bad guys. Measures to oppose the influence of communists and Freemasons in the country. So ridding the nation of communism and occultism. Criminalization of homosexuality. An ethnicity-based form of citizenship and promotion of ethno-nationalism. Right, so to be a French citizen, you have to be French. A wild thought. Corporatist reforms of the economy to oppose both capitalism and socialism. And, you know, and so capitalism's fault is that it ultimately puts profit over people. Loyalty is not the most dominant force of capitalism. Loyalty and local well-being. So, uh, you know, capitalism in the abstract, I don't, I don't actually think is worth fighting for or promoting. Right? We want a kind of tribal economy, a kind of sovereign market that first and foremost looks for the prosperity of a particular people. Not profit in the abstract. A pro-agrarian policy that strove to curb the process of urbanization. Restoration of patriarchal social and familial structures and tightening of divorce laws. So, Vichy France promoted the patriarchy and discouraged and disincentivized divorce. Terrible. Intensifying the punishment for committing abortions. Reinstatement of a Roman Catholic curriculum in secular public schools. And that makes sense for them, right? Because they, they never became Protestantized, right? Uh, to France's shame, and probably the effect of the Enlightenment in France was a consequence of her response to the Reformation. But the Reformation didn't take hold in France. Uh, some of the best Protestants in European history were French, the Huguenots. But ultimately, they were attacked and defeated in the nation. Uh, and so again, uh, probably the effect of the Enlightenment and how devastating it was to France was a consequence of her failure to repent and take the gospel uh, during the Reformation. But uh, 
what's admirable here is the recognition that education without religion is an impossibility and the right religion if the nation will prosper must be exclusively preferred over uh, errant belief systems. Vichy France serves as a prime example of how counter-revolutionaries practically acted in reforming their nation and state in a distinctly non-pacifistic manner. Pétain was a war hero and not one to shy away from a physical conflict. The counter-revolutionary program implemented in Vichy France was even called a national revolution, which changes nothing with regards to its counter-revolutionary nature, given its anti-enlightenment, uh, anti epistemic, and philosophical basis. Vichy France implemented this all in the midst of a strong opposition both at home and abroad. Even though the French government was not violently overthrown, it was a revolutionary shift in political authority that the men of Vichy France defended with violence against loyalists of the French Republic. It is a good example of a major political revolution in the midst of a brutal war, and it has a fundamentally counter-revolutionary character. Modern-day Christian nationalist movements such as those in Poland and Hungary and those now emerging all over the West may in the very near future have to actively intensify their resistance to godless leaders in Brussels, and they would be right in doing so. It is our duty as children of God to engage in active resistance against tyranny, that is, to not remain content with being more, uh, mere socio-political critics and a witnessing voice for the gospel, but if need be, to actively engage in building the kingdom of Christ proclaimed by that gospel. I think what you're seeing in the Netherlands is is simply uh, an early stage response to uh, these globalist uh, enlightenment dogs of the EU, and and I think they would be well served to consider giving an ultimatum to the Dutch government that if the Dutch government does not stop its ways, that it will simply be replaced. It would be no... I don't think it would be wrong of them to declare their own government, is what I'm saying. Um, and and a, a final point regarding this article. You know, he, he mentions that resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. I love Tim Bailey. I respect that guy more than most guys out there today. And even in areas where I disagree with him, I still grow in respect for him because he very clearly is not taking popular hip positions to build his brand, but rather taking positions that he believes, that he's convinced of, and taking the consequences as they come. Uh, and so, you know, the big place at which I part with him as of late has been COVID and how to respond to the government's response to COVID. And he, he's been quiet about it for a bit, but then he's, he's kind of re-engaged the topic on Twitter recently, citing reported deaths of COVID and how high they are, how clearly it's a vindication of the public health experts. I think there's a lot of problems with that response to those published numbers. But one thing he said that I want to highlight here 
uh, you know, he was talking about those guys that are, I would agree with him, um, infatuated with being hip, edgy, sexy, edgy, edgy where it's popular, but they would never dare to be edgy where it's going to cost them anything. And in that appropriate criticism of those guys, I think he inappropriately drew a distinction between kind of preaching resistance to tyranny and preaching the gospel. And I, you know, I don't think he would take that all the way that the logic of it would go. But, you know, let me just highlight that resisting tyranny in obedience to God is never in contrast or, or in conflict with the receiving of the blessings of God promised in the gospel. Right? You know, our, our receiving from God always spurs our obedience to God. Those aren't in conflict or intention. We don't have to pit those against one another. They go hand in hand. We obey God and anticipate receiving blessings from Him. We receive blessings from Him and are spurred on to obey God. The, the gospel is a foundational reason for our resistance to tyranny as obedience to God, as all obedience to God is motivated in light of what we receive from Him. So, with God on our side, who can stand against us? Six Semper, Tyrannus. Some more from Daryl Dow uh, over at dowblog.blogspot.com. Uh, he writes some about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And uh, not that this is going to be new for a lot of you, but uh, his observations, I think, helpfully show that the federal government intentionally sacrificing American lives in order to goad us into war. Uh, it, you know, that, that wasn't in, an invented move on 9-11. Uh, that, that's just been a habit of our federal beast. They, it, it, it's not like nationalist zeal, love of people in place marks that level of government. Right, there's a, a lust for power, a lust for wealth that dominates there. Uh, they don't care about you. They want to use you. So, this was originally posted at the American Remnant in 2021. Uh, it's just some history. World War II history. He writes, Little is more needed than a revisionist view of the great civil war that took place within Western civilization between 1914 and 1945. And that's a really good way to frame that period encompassing both world wars as a civil war within Western civilization. Those who were in favor of national sovereignty um, and governance tied to a free bloodline uh, and then those with a globalist mindset, a communist mindset, uh, and ultimately the globalists won. December 7th is always a good place to begin because it was the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor that dragged the United States into World War II. If you have not read Robert Stinnett's Day of Deceit about the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, it is well worth the time. Charles Callan Tanzel, one of the foremost American diplomatic historians of the 20th century, 
John Tolan, and many others have also convincingly argued that President Franklin Roosevelt wished to involve the United States in the European War that began in September 1939. Americans opposed it. The America First Committee was a powerful countervailing force to FDR. I'm not sure if you uh, watch Peaky Blinders or, or, or know what that show is, but there's there's a popular Netflix show that follows the the rise of a family gang in England. And the last two seasons, uh, the, the bad guy of the last two seasons is a guy named Oswald Mosley that they they present in the first of the two seasons as this all-powerful, you know, demon force, the English Hitler. Uh, in the second season, he's more of a cuck. But in the, so in the second of the two seasons, which is the final of, I think, six, they made up the show, the background intrigue is uh, American nationalists trying to goad FDR into the war uh, on the side of Hitler. And what is nefarious about that storytelling uh, is that uh, Hitler was not interested in those Western nations joining him per se, England, America. He wanted to be left alone by those nations. And the, the nationalists in America and the nationalists in, in England, they, they were not pushing a message of joining a war to establish a global order of you know, death and anger. Uh, but they were, they were pushing non-interventionism. You know, guys like Charles Lindbergh in the American First, America First movement, his main his main argument was that the war in Europe is not our business, so we should stay out. And FDR and those around him, those influence him, their agenda was getting us into the war, on the side of the globalists. That that, that was always the dynamic, and ultimately they they won through politicking. But it, it's just a, it's a lie, you know, revisionist history regarding World War II is, is rampant and it's propaganda that we're fed from very early on. Thus frustrated, FDR, so frustrated by the success of the America First Committee, thus frustrated, FDR decided to provoke Japan into attacking the United States. You know, Japan would have been fine leaving us alone. That we, we weren't part of its agenda. Again, because the Axis powers didn't have a global domination agenda. They had regional aspirations. Japan, Japan uh, much more imperialist than Germany. Germany simply looking to reunify its peoples after having been uh, wrongfully broken up by the Treaty of Versailles.
So provoking Japan into attacking the United States would involve Japan's Axis allies, and so America would thus enter the war through the back door. Stinnett wrote 56 years after the war and with the benefit of much more available information. A few, a few vignettes from the book. Number one, in the summer of 1940, Roosevelt ordered the Pacific Fleet to relocate from the West Coast to Hawaii. Its commander, Admiral Richardson, protested that Pearl Harbor offered inadequate protection from air and torpedo attack. Richardson was unwilling to have his fleet serve as bait, proverbial sitting ducks. He was subsequently replaced. Uh, what is surprising about that is not that politicians would put the American fleet out as bait, as, as sacrificial lambs per se. What's surprising is that there was an admiral, a, a top officer in the Navy, that was willing to, to sacrifice his own political career for the good of his men. How refreshing is it to have an officer corps that actually cares about the well-being of those men under its authority? That's certainly not what marks the officer corps ever, let alone the officer corps today. Number two, on October 7, 1940, Naval Intelligence Analyst Arthur McCollum wrote an eight-point memo for Roosevelt on how to go Japan into war. An eight-point memo in how to instigate, you know, it's, oh, they struck first. Okay, it, <laughs> does, it, does it count as them striking first if you goad them into it? It, it just, it's similar to Russia and Ukraine, right? All right, well, if you... How many years of goading Russia into invading Ukraine uh, does it take for them to not be counted as the aggressor in a, in a situation? And the eight-point memo included an American oil embargo against Japan. All of the points were eventually accomplished. Number three, on June 23, 1941, one day after Hitler's attack on Russia... Secretary of the Interior and FDR's advisor, Harold uh, Ix, wrote a memo to the president. There might develop from the embargoing of oil to Japan such a situation as would make it not only possible, but easy to get into this war in an effective way. Again, the, 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 the talk was, how do we get into this thing? And it was not, hey, how do we get into this thing to, to help Hitler? No, it was, or to protect us from some kind of threat, but rather how do we get into this thing to help communist Russia? And if we should thus indirectly be brought into the war, we would avoid the criticism that we had gone in as an ally of communistic Russia. Number four, going to war, quote unquote, as an ally of communistic Russia is exactly what the red agents around FDR wanted, of course. But that aside, on October 18, Ix wrote in his diary, For a long time I have believed that our best entrance into the war would be by way of Japan. Another thing that's helpful about going into the war through the Japanese door is that Japan is more easily recognizable as the other. Right? Fighting Japan is not transparently a brother war. Right? You, you want to you continue the civil war in Europe, uh, but it's easier to create a more foreign other when he's yellow and not a fellow white man. Number five, the U.S. had cracked key Japanese military and diplomatic codes long before the attack. 
FDR received raw translations of all key messages. On September 24, 1941, Washington deciphered a message from the Naval Intelligence HQ in Tokyo to Japan's Consul General in Honolulu, requesting a grid of exact locations of U.S. Navy ships in the harbor. General Walter Short and Admiral Husband Kimmel, the commanders of U.S. forces in Hawaii, were not warned. We knew the attack was coming. We knew they were gathering intelligence for it in response to our goading them into it. And we did not warn those who could have effectively defended against it, namely the chief officers. It's wild. Pearl Harbor was simply a sacrifice to, to push a political agenda. Those men died for the political gain of men like FDR. Number six, on November 15, 1941, General George Marshall held an off-the-record pre press briefing attending were writers from the Time, or rather from Time, the Associated Press, the New York Times, the New York Herald Tribune, and United Press International. Marshall, Marshall said they were expecting war to begin the first week of December. <laughs> I wonder why they were expecting that. That information was not shared with Short and Kimmel. Number seven, on November 25, Secretary of War Henry L. Stimson wrote in his diary that FDR said an attack was likely within days and asked how we should maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without too much danger to ourselves. Maneuver them into firing the first shot without risking too much for ourselves. In spite of the risk involved, however, in letting the Japanese fire the first shot, we realized that in order to have the full support of the American people, it was desirable to make sure that the Japanese be the ones to do this so that there should remain no doubt in anyone's mind as to who were the aggressors. You are, you are their playthings. I, I don't know how dominant and consistent this was at that level prior to Abraham Lincoln, but since Abraham Lincoln, this has been normal. You are their playthings. They have no nationalistic patriotism. It's, uh, it, it's tragic. And, you know, to, to not be despondent in response to this, think about that Rudyard Kipling poem. In time, the Saxon will be angered. Slow, silent, at some point he will be angered. The likes of FDR and Trudeau and Newsom, they have a shelf life. And I, I truly think that, uh, you know, this, this decade for Western civilization will be a decade of the awakening of men like the Saxon, the awakening of the men of Europe, and the resistance unto freedom and national sovereignty. Uh, th this is going to be a decade of liberation. So take hope. Don't buy their propaganda and lies. Take hope knowing that you belong to sturdy stock. And you serve a sovereign Lord. Go with God.
When there's nothing left but the fire in my chest and the air that fills my lungs, I'll hold my tears and trade my ears for a glimpse at kingdom come. On the other side of misery, there's a world we long to see. The strife we share will take us there to relief and sovereignty. Oh my God, we'll have our home again. By God, we'll have our home. By blood or sweat, we'll get there yet. By God, we'll have our home. In our own towns, we're foreigners now. Our names are spat and cursed. The headline smack of another attack Not the last and not the worst Oh, my fathers, they look down on me I wonder what they feel To see their noble sons driven down Beneath a coward's heel Oh, my God, we'll have our home again They strain to see I struggle forth to find a friend To light the way for me Oh, brothers, can you hear my voice Or am I all alone? If there's no fire to guide my way Then I will start my own Oh, my God! Oh!